Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. How do you make a Swiss roll? I don't know. How do you make a Swiss roll? Push him downhill. Piece of cake. <laughs> I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Alex Turner and Matt Helders of the English rock band Arctic Monkeys. They're very English. Yeah, that'll help break the ice. Their new album, AM, comes out in a couple of weeks. Later, we'll speak with actor David O. Yellowo, who stars in the new movie, The Butler. Also coming up, country legend Ricky Skaggs gives some Kentucky gentlemanly advice. Comedian Kurt Brownoller lists his favorite offstage comedy, and Piper Kerman, the writer who inspired the series Orange is the New Black, talks about reality becoming television. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these stories. We've entered the heart of hurricane season, and right on schedule, two serious weather systems are brewing in the Atlantic and Caribbean. The Egyptian government's deadly crackdown. Researchers just unveiled the discovery of a rare new mammal. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I've been very intrigued by this new computer game uh, for PC. It's called The Novelist. It's unusual in that it actually follows the quotidian decisions of a writer named Dan Kaplan. So wait, this is a video game where you watch somebody write a novel? (laughs) Well, you're actually a ghost in this guy's house, and you're doing things that influence his life decisions. Oh, so you get to decide whether he spends time writing his novel or doing other things. Well, exactly. And here's what the game designer said about it. He said there is no winning or losing. By (laughs) the end, maybe your guy has written the greatest book ever, but his wife left him and his kid is getting in trouble at school. I don't know. That sounds like losing a game to me, Sadie. So this is a game (laughs) about someone balancing work and life. And let me tell you right now that for anyone who writes for a living, this game sounds like an existential nightmare. (laughs) And I believe it's a great game, but I just want to crawl into a ball in a closet and cry. Also, it sounds like it does, I think, falsely represent writing as a zero-sum game, right? Well, Rico, so is life. So (laughs) is life. But is it really? Are there not novelists who also have happy marriages and have written a novel and their children came out okay? I mean, I can't think of any. Not Dan (laughs) Kaplan. Wait, this isn't fair to novelists who already have enough distractions. (laughs) This is like playing asteroids while an asteroid's coming coming to Earth. If you're a novelist. You know what I mean? This will disrupt your life even further, playing a game and trying to balance life. And... Exactly, and you can feel bad about yourself in two media. Fun game. Sadie <laughs> Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a boogie board on a wave of booze. Just try to keep your balance. Yes, or fall right in. That's also fun. (laughs) Either way. First, the history part. This week back in 1859, a revolutionary household device was patented. Or rather, it was a device that then inspired a revolutionary device. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. A device to help the disabled ended up mainly as a device to help shoppers. It was 1859, and a guy named Nathan Ames got a patent for a pretty great and humane concept, a set of mechanical stairs on a moving belt. He figured it might help old or infirm people get upstairs in their homes. He called it the revolving stairway. 
Ames's idea didn't exactly catch on like wildfire, though. Maybe because, in his concept, the thing had to be cranked by hand. The revolving stairway never did get built. And it was 33 years before another guy, Jesse Reno, actually manufactured a similar device with a way less humanitarian function. It was basically a wide belt on an incline designed to carry crowds uphill. Reno had the first one installed at Coney Island Amusement Park to lift packs of fun seekers up onto a pier. And voila, the world's first escalator. Actually, Reno called it an inclined elevator. The term escalator was coined by a third guy, Charles Seeberger, who improved on Reno's machine by making it more like a moving stairwell with actual steps. Escalators popped up around the world, including the British department store Harrods, where at first the ride made shoppers so nervous, the store handed out shots of brandy at the top to calm them down. Today, of course, we're used to escalators. In fact, we might depend on them a little too much. One mall in Japan boasts the shortest escalator on earth. It carries customers a whopping 33 inches downstairs. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Katie Emerson of the Hawthorne Bar in Boston, not far from where Nathan Ames first came up with the idea for a rotating stairway. And Katie, what cocktail does that story inspire you to make? It uh, inspired me to make a drink that I'm calling the Iron Pier Swizzle. All right, because that was the pier at Coney Island where the first escalator was installed, correct? Yes, absolutely. All right, and how does this thing go? So I'm using a Bully Boy white rum, which is a Boston white rum. I thought that might be appropriate. Keeping it local. And uh, we decided to use a swizzle style of drink. It's sort of a handmade way to make a blended drink. It's a Caribbean style. You know, when you're on the beach and you don't have electricity, You can use a uh, branch from one of their trees to swizzle up your drink and make it frosty and tasty and delicious. I got it. And this is because uh, in Ames' original design, he imagined the machine might be hand-cranked. Yep, exactly. It's a hand hand way to do it. And Um, you're actually physically using a a swizzle stick. It's a branch from a tree. So am I going to need a branch for this? Uh, You know, they sell lots of swizzle sticks. Some people do it with bar spoons. Uh, We have the actual swizzle stick about a foot long. And it has five prongs on the end of it. All right. So you've got the rum and you've got your swizzle stick. What do you do? So we put in the glass the rum, uh, some grapefruit juice, cinnamon syrup, mm. and uh, a little bit of grenadine and some bitters. And then so as you add the ice and swizzle the drink, it sort of the frost rises up on the outside of the glass. Like an escalator? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And is that it? And then, Well, then you, you top it off with ice, and then I floated a little bit of brandy on top. Of course, like the customers at Harrods got. Yeah. And then if you drink enough of these things, then you'll need an escalator to take you out of the bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Brendan, there you go. Swizzle sticks were not originally those thin plastic deals that you used to spear cocktail olives and stuff. Apparently. Yeah. And uh, I also did some research, and I found out they were used at the turn of the last century to stir the bubbles out of champagne. (laughs) Wow. That is true. That's eliminating the most fun part of champagne. Yeah. (laughs) Turning it into white wine. Get those bubbles out of there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Folks, our website is all bubbles and fun because it contains all our cocktail recipes. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is comedian Kurt Brownoler. Variety magazine named him one of the top ten comics to watch. And in L.A., he hosts the live variety show Hot Tub with Kristen Shaw. This week, he releases his debut comedy album, How Do I Land? Here he is to tell us about the act that inspired that title and his list. My name is Kurt Brownoler. I am a comedian. I recently ran a Kickstarter to raise $6,000 so that we could skywrite How Do I Land? And we did it. The thing that I've been working on in my comedy is like, how do I, how can I insert stupid or absurd moments into strangers' lives? Because I think it can like break people's routine a little bit. For that reason alone, it kind of makes the world a little bit of a better place. Like, I'm not saving the world in any sense. I'm doing super dumb things. But you can look up and the sky isn't the sky anymore. It's kind of a, you redefine the space in a way. So here's some more unexpected comedic venues. Number one, the Idiotorod started in San Francisco and then was brought to New York City. It is a version of the Iditarod, but using, instead of sleds, it's grocery carts, and instead of dogs, it's dumb humans. <laughs> so you can modify the grocery cart however you want, and then you have four people pulling the cart and then one driver. And that's the only rules. I did the first one, and everyone would get dressed up. We were supposed to be prisoners who had escaped from Rikers, and so we were just throwing raw fish at other people who were racing. And we got an award for that, for like best use of a weapon. Everyone is running from Brooklyn into a very far away place in Manhattan. So you had to run probably three or five miles pushing this cart. So it looks absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Anytime you substitute dogs for people, it goes both ways. People for dogs or dogs for people. Comedy gold. Uh, my second example of comedy interrupting life is subway vandalism. It's always there, and it's super stupid, but it's often very funny, and you never expect it. Remember seeing subway ads where it's like Tom Cruise and Denzel Washington, and someone just on their foreheads had written bad actor on Tom Cruise's forehead and good actor on Denzel Washington's forehead. And I was like, what are you, who are you talking to? Is that his thing? He just goes and writes bad actor, good actor on every actor that he sees in the subway. Stuff like that I love. Now, I've always wanted to vandalize actual on-air commercials the way people vandalize subway ads. Like most subway ads when they're vandalized, they're really dumb. They're super aggressive jokes. They're usually a fart or someone's blacked out teeth. You know, it's kind of like classic dumb, dumb comedy, which I'm a big fan of. And so I thought it would be really funny if you actually, and this will happen in the future, where like someone essentially hacks in when the commercials come on. They're the same commercials, but everyone's farting the whole time, you know? Another one that has to be on this list would be uh, anything that Sasha Baron Cohen has done. Sasha Baron Cohen, for those of you who don't know, does all these characters, either Ali G or Borat. Uh, Ali G is kind of like this hip-hop guy who's super dumb and misuses hip-hop slang all the time. And then he would interview real political people, and they're all trying to be very polite, but he's being moronic. Like, there's a really famous one where he interviews the head of the UN, Boutros Boutros Ghali. How many countries is in the UN? It must have more than 180 countries. Is Disneyland a member of the UN? No, because Disneyland is not an independent state. Do you think in a hundred years' time, Disneyland or Disney World could have a seat? No. 
<laughs> the whole time. And Boutros Ghali doesn't know what to do. The level of commitment that Sasha Baron Cohen brings to the, his characters and that he forces them into the world and forces the world to conform to his ideas is amazing. My next thing is that I'm going to be renting out billboards in small towns across America. I don't want to give away all the jokes, but I think one of the jokes is just going to be the giant envelope. That'll be the billboard, giant envelope, and it'll say, To Brian, and then underneath it'll say, Giant Brian, not regular Brian. The guest list from Kurt Brownholder, his comedy album, How Do I Land, lands in stores this week. And people, we also have a bonus guest list this week, courtesy of actor Miles Teller. He is star of the hit indie movie romance, The Spectacular Now. That is available for your listening pleasure only on our brand new website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Folks, coming up, Shakespearean actor David Oyelowo talks about being slapped by Oprah Winfrey. Hooray. And we witness the most dangerous possible way to make breakfast cereal. Protective eyewear recommended wow. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, former MTV VJ Kennedy. Remember when we had those? Oh my gosh. She tells us about enduring a disaster with the help, or rather lack thereof, of a rock star. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is British actor David Oyelowo. He got his start 14 years ago acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and lately he has appeared in a slew of acclaimed American movie hits, including The Help and Lincoln. He was also the greedy scientist villain in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This week, he has got a major role in director Lee Daniels' new film, The Butler. He plays the son of the title character, a man who goes from sharecropping in the segregated South to serving as a White House butler during the Civil Rights era. So when I spoke with David, I asked him how much Brits are exposed to that period of American history. Well, we're certainly not taught it, but through documentaries and and just common knowledge, you have a sense of it. But I have to say, my very peripheral knowledge up until moving to the States in 2007 is very much reflected in a lot of Americans. I mean, for for us in the UK, the civil rights movement is kind of boiled down to the line, I have a dream, Martin Luther (laughs) King, maybe Malcolm X, you know, and it starts to kind of dry up after that. But unfortunately, what I found in doing films like Lincoln and The Help and Red Tails, all films that sort of chronicle African-American life in this country, it's, it's amazing to me how few people truly know the depth of that history here. Actually, that hadn't occurred to me that you're in almost a trilogy of films there that are all dealing with this issue. I mean, are you? would you consider yourself a scholar on the civil rights movement? I'm, I'm a borderline scholar now. I, I certainly, I know, more, I know more about American history than I do British or even Nigerian <laughs> history, which is where, you know, my, my parents are from originally and sure. I lived for seven years. But, you know, it's an incredibly rich history. So it hasn't been a bind to research. I'm sure. What did you learn about that period that you think maybe the, a lot of people in this country don't think about? Um, the thing that has leapt out at me the most was this film is about the faceless and the nameless mm. civil rights activists. 
and there were thousands, if not millions of them, a lot of them incredibly young. I mean, teenagers, a lot of them. That sure. you, these kids who engage in the sit-ins, and the, which was non-violent protest as well, which is just so incredibly admirable to be fighting hate with love and to plug into that at that age. Mm. That, that's the thing that sort of bowled me over is just how self-sacrificial they were at the age they were. If you think of what uh, you know, teenagers <laughs> are preoccupied with these days, it's, it's, it's quite a marked difference. Well, you play one of these young people. Your character actually starts as a teenager and then we follow him through several decades of his life. Mm. And of course, makeup helps you age, but how do you manage to play a character that is younger <laughs> than yourself? How did you go backwards? Yeah, it was it was really challenging, actually. Um, not least because Lee insisted on no makeup at all uh, for the early years. I mean, what he, is his justification for no makeup? He just has this fear of anything that feels inauthentic. Ah, I see. Um, he also was scared that we it may look like we're trying too hard, you know. So we were very careful not to kind of put on a a, a young voice, so to speak, mm -hmm. or, or or start acting young. But, you know, I ended up having to do crazy things. Like I would have to have 10 hours sleep and drink lots of water before all those teenage scenes. And then, you literally, know, scenes with... Literally drinking water would make you youthful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it actually helps. It, it, it hydrates the skin and a lot of sleep just gives you that kind of glow. That's all we need to do all of this time? Well, it's, it's, it's what you need to do when you have to crash corset. I don't know how, I don't know how long I, I would survive with four kids having 10 hours sleep a day. I don't think my wife would stick around. But um, I'd eat a lot of salty food, again, drink a lot of water. And then what that does is really puff you out as water clings to the salt. And then I'd have to go back in the gym, drop five pounds. But, you know, that's what you're looking for as an actor. You're looking for that kind of challenge. It sounds like it. Um, speaking of challenges, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about your stage background. It is, it's my understanding you had a pretty historic moment in 2001. You played Henry VI with the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was the first time a black actor had portrayed a king in a major Shakespeare production. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I didn't know that when I'd been cast. I was just an actor who was keen to play a very nice role. But um, um, indeed. all of that sort of history got, got poured onto it after the event. So had this been made a big deal by the time you got on stage? It had. It had. You know, I, I, I had got the role and then I had this period where my lunch breaks during rehearsal were just spent talking to the press every day oh, because man. it had just caught the public's attention in a way that I couldn't have anticipated and I literally at some point had to just go right enough I've just got to actually now go and focus on the thing that everyone's talking about there is this Shakespeare play I have to ace right yeah, now yeah 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 <laughs> that three Shakespeare play I mean it's Henry the sixth part one two and three sure well we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show right the first one I actually may have just asked you if we were to meet you at a dinner party what question would you least like to be asked <laughs> Well, it's not actually that I don't like being asked it, but I have been amazed at how many people have said, what's it like to be slapped by Oprah? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I don't know how you know, uninteresting people's lives are, but uh, I have to say, I didn't wake up that morning thinking, woohoo, yeah. she's going to slap me in the face. We should explain, Oprah Winfrey plays your mother, and in one scene, she slaps you. And what's also surprising is how people go, oh, you, you just, that must have been so great to be slapped by Oprah. What an honor. <laughs> <laughs> that was your moment of greatness. I know. I have arrived. Uh, all right. Here's our second question. Tell us something that we don't know. 
And this can be about anything. This can be about yourself or the world at large, anything that would kind of blow people's minds at a dinner party. Hmm. Well, I don't know that it would blow people's minds, but you know, I, I wasn't destined to be an actor at all. I was, I was going to go off and, and be a, a lawyer, really. And what actually happened Whoa. is I uh, became completely obsessed with my pastor's daughter she used to work the overhead projector at the front of church and i literally spent about a year just watching her hair cascade <laughs> over her shoulders as she worked the overhead projector oh. and uh, and one day she uh, she turned around to me came up to me and said do you want to come to the theater with me and i thought this was a date so you know all my prayers had been answered but uh, it then turned out that she was uh, actually uh, gaining browning points with the director because they were low on boys and she saw me as an easy target she was recruiting you for the company she was recruiting me but uh, you know i have her to thank because i, d I really don't think i would have been a an actor otherwise did you go is, is that your wife no it's not my wife right. thankfully because my <laughs> wife wouldn't have used me in such a merciless <laughs> way David Oyelowo. You can see him in the movie The Butler. It opens in theaters this weekend. Enrico, I love the idea that getting slapped by Oprah is like a high point of an acting career. <laughs> it is somewhat amusing. <laughs> right? Come on, you're nobody in this town until you've been slugged by Judy Dench. <laughs> that is you know? obvious. Yeah. Oh, and if you get dropkicked by Meryl Streep, buddy. Oh, yeah. It's Oscar time. <laughs> To eavesdrop. Lisa Kennedy Montgomery is better known simply as Kennedy. The bespectacled VJ was a constant presence on MTV during the 90s. These days, she's a rock DJ. Her new book, The Kennedy Chronicles, is all about her misadventures in 90s celebrity culture. Today, we overhear her tell one of those dinner party worthy tales. Hi, I'm Kennedy. I'm a broadcaster, and I have a new book out about my time at MTV in the 90s, and here's a story from it about suffering through a natural disaster with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. How the hell did that happen? Trent and I became friends before I moved to MTV in New York in 1992, and when I'd go back to L.A., sometimes I would stay at his place. He needed some comic relief, and I needed some credibility, so we were a match made in heaven. In January of 1994, I was staying at his place, and I accidentally let his beloved cat into the street in the middle of the night. And shortly after that, the police arrived, because I had also set off the silent alarm. The police had threatened to arrest me, so Trent was there to make me feel better and tuck me in safely to go sleepy night-night. We were barely awake in the still, dark morning, drifting off into the kind of gentle sleep only a rock star and a VJ can share in a platonic bed. At 4.31 a.m., the bed shook violently. Not from raging man-woman intercourse, but from that godforsaken Northridge earthquake. It went on forever, like a chest cold or a Jessica Simpson song and it was pure, soul-blinding terror. There is no mistaking an earthquake. You know exactly what it is, unlike a gunshot that sounds like a firecracker or a weather balloon you mistake for a UFO. The floor buckles, glass breaks. You can't go outside because it's out there, too. We couldn't say anything, but oh, oh, 
as we clung to each other, like we were really going to honestly, the roof is going to cave in, die, like die, die, not just I was so embarrassed I could die. I felt my eyes get huge and my throat tighten. And I remember thinking, he's one of the biggest rock stars in the world, but he's so wiry and helpless. And then Trent's drummer at the time, Podboy, came in and, and he was wearing little jammies. I swear he looked like a five-year-old. And in my memory, I have imposed on him that he was wearing navy blue jammies with little Yodas on it. But uh, that's not true. That's just from Raising Arizona. And so I've implanted that in my memory, but I really like it. So Podboy crawled in bed with us, and it was the three of us in bed, just terrified as we were taking in aftershock after aftershock. And uh, we realized that we needed some provisions, and we also needed to make sure that the house wasn't going to explode. So these two rocket scientists decided to walk around the house with the only lit implement they had, which was a skull candle. And so they were checking for leaking gas with a lit candle. And of course, the only thing they had in their fridge was a tub of mayonnaise. So finally, we went to, you know, the rock star diner, Swingers. And uh, the owner of the restaurant was there and literally pulled out a camel and a red carpet and uh, tiny French horns to serenade Trent as he made him whatever he wanted from the refrigerator. And literally, when Podboy and I asked if we could get something to eat, he shut us down. We could have nothing except for the crumbs that fell from Trent's freshly shorn whiskers. So the moral of the story is never get caught in a natural disaster with a rock star because it's dangerous, pointless, and really bad for the ego. Kennedy, her new memoir is called The Kennedy Chronicles, The Golden Age of MTV Through Rose-Colored Glasses, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, this week I got to see a puffer gun. Really? Yeah. I don't know what that is. No, I know what you're thinking, but this is not a weapon for people with medical marijuana prescriptions. Oh, good. Yeah, no. It also doesn't launch harpoons at pufferfish, I'm assuming? No, the puffer gun is an old-fashioned machine that puffs rice, corn, or any whole grain, actually. All right. And without it, there'd be no breakfast cereals we know it almost. Okay, so it's corn puffs would come out of this? Corn puffs, honey smacks, stuff like that. It's not a dangerous gun, is what you're saying. It's not a dangerous gun, and, and it's actually no longer in use, but the folks at MOFAD, a group based in New York trying to create a museum of food and drink, hmm. restored an old gun as part of a roving exhibit. Okay. Yeah, so I stopped by the launch party for the gun, and I asked MOFAD's research coordinator, Emma Bost, how the thing works. So the basic principle behind puffing is you're taking moisture that is inside starch and allowing that to escape as steam. And when that steam escapes uh, from cooked starch, the structure kind of explodes. Um, and as the steam is flashing off, that's what, what causes things to puff, essentially. And so that's basically what would take a, like a dry piece of rice and turn it into puffed rice. Right. And I mean, even dry rice has a little bit of moisture in it. And what happens is when you put that inside the puffing machine, you seal the puffing machine, uh, the moisture starts to boil, basically, but it can't escape as steam. When you then whack the lid of the puffing machine, that steam flashes off immediately, and the pressure drop that happens causes that puff to happen. About how wide is it and how tall is it? It's about uh, seven feet long. 
four feet wide and maybe about three feet tall. And it's got this cool wheel thing in the middle that rotates. Why does it do that? Right, so the rotation is to prevent the starch that's inside from scorching. If it all just stayed in one place, it would burn because the barrel of the machine is very hot. How are you heating it up? We actually have propane. Uh, usually you would use a natural gas in a, in a commercial setting. But, but because we're doing this in a mobile context, we're using propane tanks. Do you know uh, where the first one was created and who did it? I do, yeah. The puffing process was discovered by a scientist named Alexander Anderson um, around the turn of the century in, in 1902. And he was a botanist, actually, and was studying the structure of starch-containing plants, like grains, beans, etc., and uh, he was working actually in New York at the Botanical Gardens and was investigating a theory that basically starch had a little bit of moisture in it that hadn't been proven. And he realized if I seal the starch in a, in a closed environment and heat it, that moisture should turn to steam. And if I break that and it puffs or it expands, that will prove that starch has this moisture. So he started using small glass test tubes filled with flour and cornstarch he would put those in an oven and then break them with a hammer, basically, and they would explode. It was very dangerous. Um, he's really credited as being the, the sort of grandfather of puffing. Grandfather of puffing. That's a great title. Right. He actually sold the patent to this process to, uh, to Quaker, which was a big milling company at the time. And they were really producing hot breakfast cereals. I mean, oatmeal is, of course, what we're all familiar with. Uh, but they hadn't really moved into the so-called ready-to-eat cereal market. And the rest is cereal history. Yeah. Anderson himself actually had this idea that a great way to debut this product, which hadn't really been commercially introduced yet, would be at a World's Fair. Yeah. And so he had eight bronze um, cylinders. Sometimes the literature says they were actual cannons. Uh, we think they were actually just metal cylinders where he would fill them with rice and basically puffed uh, all of this rice into a, a large metal cage. Uh, very similar to what we're doing now. All right, well, I want to watch the cage get filled up with puffed rice, so I'm going to wander over and try to talk with, with Dave. That would be Dave Arnold, the president of MOFAD. He looks like uh, he's over by the puffing machine. He looks like he's preparing to puff. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Thank you. Hey, David. So what's going on here with you and the gun? See the gauge over there? We have a pressure gauge. So Peter and I are just checking the pressure gauge, and when it gets to about 130 PSI, the temperature is good because it's going to keep riding up. Then we're going to stop the uh, gas. Then we're going to stop the motor, let it spin until the door is facing down, put the brake on, then hit it with this big, heavy old stick, and uh, boom. Is this how it was done? Was there a big, heavy old, like a lots of big, heavy old sticks back in the day? This is 100% legit. So what would happen uh, commercially is someone, one operator would handle uh, several of these guns at a time. They'd just be going between them, firing them, loading them, firing and loading them. But this is actually how cereal was produced commercially for decades. Sounds like a lot of fun. That would have been a great job. Uh, well, it's probably, like, like anything like this, it's probably fun for the first day or so. But, you know, probably, you know, 10 hours a day, five, six days a week, probably get old after a while. Wasn't there an easier way then to do this? I mean, why was this the method that they chose? No, this actually was the easiest way. This was superseded later by two different techniques, uh, extrusion, direct extrusion puffing, and then they made what's called a continuous puffer, which is a continuous version of this so that an operator could just sit and watch the machine and it would continuously go. When the needle hits the, the next line, we're going to cut it. So this is what we're about to do it. All right, I'm going to step down then.
are you happy with the rice? Yeah, see, look at here. So, like, all this stuff looks good. Like, the temperature we fired it at was right. It does look like cereal. It is. Yeah, no, it's, it's legit. Now it's time for the mini marshmallows. And folks who are in New York, after you eat your cereal this Saturday, you can visit the Puffer Gun. It'll be making stops at various places. And you can find out the details at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right. Coming up, we speak with Piper Kerman, the writer whose life inspired the new show Orange is the New Black. And country legend Ricky Skaggs tells you how to behave. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm Eddie Etiquette right here. This, I'm Mr. Mr. Etiquette. He's really excited about it. All that and more <laughs> when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, writer Piper Kerman, author of the memoir Orange is the New Black, talks about watching her life become a TV show. Also, we hear a new song from Nico Case, but first, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is country and bluegrass legend Ricky Skaggs. He picked up his first mandolin in 1959 at the age of five. Mm. By the time he was seven, he'd already made his Grand old Opry debut. He's had 12 number one hits and garnered 14 Grammys. For the past decade or so, he's focused almost exclusively on bluegrass and roots music, and he currently tours and records with his band Kentucky Thunder. This month, Ricky released a memoir entitled Kentucky Traveler, My Life in Music, and Ricky, welcome. Great to be with you guys today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. So, Ricky, when you were six years old, bluegrass legend Bill Monroe pulled you on stage and gave you his mandolin, and, and you've been playing almost since that time, constantly. Do you remember what song you played when he pulled you on stage? Mm. I do. Uh, it was Ruby, Are You Mad at Your Man? Something a six-year-old should really be singing about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was either that one or the Pinball Machine song that I only knew two. Uh-huh. And my mom had told me before I went on the stage, don't you sing that Pinball song when you get up there. Why? So, was that considered oh. like a, a, a horrible habit for a kid back then? <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Do you ever play that tune with the uh, Kentucky Travelers, the Ruby song? Uh, I don't because it's so high now. I mean, when I was singing it, it sounded like a dog whistle. It was so high. <laughs> so dogs from four counties would come and howl. So You can't hit those notes anymore, you think? No, I can't hit those notes anymore. But uh, actually, if you want to go on YouTube, type in uh, Ricky Skaggs and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, and you will find a seven-year-old with a vacation Bible school haircut, Ricky Skaggs, <laughs> as a special guest on the Flat and Scruggs show, wearing his white shirt and his little string tie, singing, Ruby, Are You Mad at Your Man? back and look at those things? I do. You know, when we did the show with Flat and Scruggs, they sent us a card in the mail and said, hey, this is when it's going to air here in Nashville. So mom got the supper dishes all put away and we, you know, we, we sat down to watch the show. It came on and I freaked out. 
And I ran into my bedroom and got under my bed. I couldn't watch it. I was so shy. Oh, no. I looked for it for years, thinking that someone might have had a, a copy of it somewhere. And uh, it was not to be found. And then uh, some guy that used to work at WSM-TV passed away, and he had taken the, the tapes home from WSM and recorded them. So now you can watch yourself. Now you can handle now it. Now I can stand to watch myself. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, your time on the road, uh, I, think it, I think it qualifies you sure. to help our listeners uh, with their etiquette questions. So are, are you ready to field some of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Eddie Etiquette right here. I'm Mr. <laughs> Mr. Etiquette. Eddie feel- Etiquette. That's almost as good as Ricky Skaggs for a stage name. I know right it. There. Yeah, yeah, I've thought about that. Well, let's try it. So our first question comes from uh, Liz in Santa Monica, California. And Liz writes, what's the best way for a crowd to handle an encore? I've been in some shows where the show was fantastic, so we clapped and cheered for one encore, then a second, and then usually the third time, I start to feel like we're being greedy by asking for more and putting the performer on the spot. Aww. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, we, we always love giving an encore, but, you know, I think it's always good, too, to leave the crowd wanting to see you again when you come back. You know, I think you can wear mm. your welcome out if you just keep doing encores. Of though. course. Yeah, there is bands that will absolutely will not do an encore. They just they just won't yeah. do it. And I just, I've never been able to do that. I, you know, so you don't feel like it's putting the performer in an uncomfortable spot? You're like, I'm happy to do one. One but- or two, you know. I mean, if it's really, really high octane and they're just, you know, throwing babies in the air, then, you know, you can do a third one or something like that. You better do a third one and there'll be some problems. That's right. You'll be on the news. All right. (laughs) Didn't save the babies. Yeah, that's right. Well, there you go, Liz. Uh, Here's something from Stephanie in Lexington, Kentucky. And Stephanie writes, I'm also a musician and I'm wondering how do you decline a request during a show when an audience member wants you to play a song that you either don't know or don't want to play? Uh Sometimes, you know, people will come up and ask me to do a song that someone else had a hit on. And it's like, sorry, I don't, you know, I don't do that. I don't know that song. That's yeah. Randy Travis's song or something like that, you know. Oh, no. and, uh, but my, my roots were in bluegrass. I mean, I started playing bluegrass, you know, early in my life and played in a lot of bluegrass bands before yeah. I went to work with Amy Lou Harris, which that was really my first band uh, to play country music with, you know, commercial style country music. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, since 1997, I came back to my roots and, you know, we get a lot of requests, you know, to do Honey, Open That Door, Heartbroke, or some of these songs that I had, you know, number one country hits on that, that it's kind of hard to do within a bluegrass configuration. It's just not. Yeah. Well, that's a good practical reason for not doing something. You're like, we we really don't have the instruments to make that happen. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We, <laughs> we got eight people on stage, but we, we don't have, <laughs> yeah. we don't have the instruments to make yeah. this happen. So they say, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you ever try it out a bluegrass version of one of your old songs? That's sounds like it could be fun. I've seen Dolly Parton do versions of, you know, Stairway to Heaven. Well, you know, me and Bruce Hornsby, my knucklehead friend that I love so much, <laughs> he and I, we did a bluegrass version of Rick James' Super Freak. Uh, and it's, right. it's, uh, it's a sight to behold. So uh, wow. the elder folks don't really know who Rick James was, you know, and that, yeah. that old bluegrass singer Rick James. And, uh, but, you know, when the, when the young kids hear it, I'm loving it right now. Yeah, so it's pretty, wow. uh, pretty cool. There you go, Stephanie. Just so I guess the answer is if if somebody requests a song that you don't want to play, just play Super Freak and Bluegrass. That's it. Exactly. Just just Bluegrass it out, and they'll be happy. That's there. it. All right. So we we have a question. This one comes from Bo, who grew up in Virginia. How should one deal with people being condescending towards Southerners? Apparently, 
Bo encountered this attitude often. Man, redneck is cool. Duck, <laughs> Duck Dynasty has made redneck cool again. That's uh, a good so point. The reality show. That's, that's right. That's a good point. You know, so it's okay to be redneck, especially if you know that you're redneck. You know, it's when you don't know that you're redneck is when you're dangerous to society. You know? <laughs> but if you really know it, you know, and you don't mind showing it, then, you know, it's okay to be redneck. So if somebody is being condescending to you, you kind of say, hey, you're the uncool one. Like, I'm the coolest thing going right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just smile and say, well, you all eat sushi. We catch fish with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there, we, there you go. I mean, I, I think that captures it. Simple Although, enough. you know, Ricky, you, you, wear, you wear your hairstyle long in the back, so we don't know what color your neck is, actually. Well, if you raised it up, you, there's a song called You Can't Grow That Black Hair Long Enough to Cover That Red. Of course, of course, there is. We'll take your word on it. Ricky Skaggs, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, thank you. It was great to be with you guys today. She's a very kinky girl, the kind you won't take home to mother. She will never let your spirits down once you get her off the street. Ricky Skaggs, his new book is called Kentucky Traveler, My Life in Music. And we've got that video of young Ricky playing mandolin back in 1961. It's beautiful. You'll find it. It's pretty cool. You'll find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. And you can also use our website for other stuff. Emailing us etiquette questions would be one of them. That's a fun thing to do. Like, for instance, is it okay to put my painfully shy seven-year-old on television? There's one right there. (laughs) See, we're sure you'll think of many others. Just head to our front page and click on the link that says contact. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on a dinner party-worthy topic. Today, the subject is prison, and our expert is Piper Kerman. She served 15 months in federal prison. Orange is the New Black is the name of her memoir, in which she chronicles her transition from well-heeled Smith College alumna to inmate. It's also the name of a new Netflix show based on her book. Piper, welcome Tell us, how did you end up in prison? Well, going way back in time to the early 90s, I was in my very early 20s, fresh out of college, and I became involved in a relationship with a a mysterious older woman, and she was involved in narcotics trafficking, which I did not know initially, but I quickly learned. A lot of folks would have run screaming, but I was intrigued by her, and I ended up following her around the globe. And at her request, I carried a bag of money from Chicago to Brussels. And for that, you were convicted of money laundering 10 years after the fact. So eventually you find yourself in prison. What surprised you the most about prison life? Almost everything was surprising about prison life because I I had really no idea what to expect that was realistic. Almost all of the depictions of prison life that I had seen, whether they were in popular culture or in more sort of realistic form, were about men. Mm. And so I didn't know if those things, first of all, were true or if they would be true uh, when I entered a women's prison. The depiction of prisoners as violent is really, really consistent. And so naturally, I feared violence. And in a minimum security women's prison, a minimum security women's federal prison, I didn't experience violence. Your book and the TV show based on your book is filled with fascinating female characters. And we know about them because you wrote about them. And you wrote about them because you had the education and the background to to write a memoir. Very few of your fellow prisoners will probably have that opportunity. So I'm wondering, who 
is someone you encountered in prison that you wish could write a memoir? There were many women who were fascinating to me on lots of levels. And prison is a place where people choose to talk about themselves or choose not to. Silence and being very closed-mouthed is definitely a very permissible approach. So there are women who I did time with, you know, my bunkie, the woman who I shared, you know, a tiny cubicle with. Miss Natalie? Miss Natalie. You know, Miss Natalie and I shared an incredible intimacy but uh, still, her ba- her life is very mysterious because she was just not forthcoming with yeah. her past history. I have no idea why she served eight years in prison, like what her offense was. You said was. that's the one question that you can't ask anyone. You knew that You knew that much going in that you weren't allowed to ask people yeah, why that, they were there. That question is verboten. Is that – do you think some – that impulse not to ask why you're there, is that a, a way internally prisoners give each other a second chance? That is a really – Astute observation. I think it is a little bit of a second chance. I think that there are some offenses which are controversial or could really bring heat to you. So Mm. if you, for example, if you had harmed a child, you know, that would definitely earn you a lot of animus from your fellow prisoners. Also, you know, I found myself serving a 15-month sentence for a nonviolent drug offense. There were many other women there who were serving much longer sentences Mm -hmm. for nonviolent drug offenses. Mm -hmm. So the disparity in sentencing, you know, on a personal level, you know, wow, I'm doing a year and you're doing seven years. That sucks. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, not talking about sort of the nature of your offenses, you know, is a little bit of of a release valve around um, confronting those disparities. Sure. So what is it like watching the TV version of your life? You know, you walk down the street and there are literally billboards advertising your the darkest moment of your life. That's got to be strange. Uh, it's very, very thrilling. Uh, it's certainly surreal. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to set out and write a book, a memoir about, you know, the stu- certainly the stupidest and, you know, the least moral, your biggest mistake, you know, to put that out there. Mm-hmm. And then to see that trans transformed into something different is really interesting. So, you know, I watched the show for the first time. It was fascinating because there are many, many departures from, certainly from my story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Piper Chapman's choices and storyline is very, very different than my life. But there are also either moments, small moments like, you know, the scene when in the first episode when Piper Chapman is put into the room where she's going to live initially for that first night mm-hmm. and she has a whole exchange with DeMarco, you know, the, the short Italian-American prisoner yeah. who tells her to sleep on top of the bed and yeah. not under the covers. Yeah. I watched that scene and it is – it transports me back instantly. That scene is so close to reality. Mm. It's really strange and fascinating for me. Don't make your bed. What? We'll make it for you. Oh, no, that's okay. You don't need to do that. Honey, we'll make the bed. We know how. I know how to make a bed. We know how to do it, so we'll pass inspection. So we make our beds in the morning before they can... You sleep on top of the bed with the blanket over you. What if I want to sleep in the bed? Look, you can do what you want, but you will be the only one in this entire prison that does. You want that? So you now sit on the board of the Women's Prison Association. You do a lot of public speaking about your time in prison and about conditions in prison in general to law schools and other organizations. 
I'm wondering, do you ever get prisoned out? You served your time. You wrote a book about your experience. Is there an impulse to want to move on? The criminal justice system is a sprawling universe, which contains a lot of sadness and a lot of darkness and a lot of human failing on every side, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, people who commit crimes or whether you're talking about the people who run, you know, the the courts and the the correct, you know, the jails. Uh, so there are definitely times when you're, when, for me personally when it's like, oof, this is hard stuff. It is. It's really hard stuff. I mean, these are some of the most sub- substantial problems as a society that we're struggling with. How do we have safety for everyone? How do we hold people accountable when they transgress against the community? Um, but they're really important. And so it's important to talk about. Well, Piper Kerman, thanks for talking about it with us. Thank you so much for having me. And Rico, Piper said something else worth noting on our kind of food-centric show. All right. Apparently another interesting aspect of prison was the importance of cooking. Huh. Yeah, everyone had access to two little microwaves, and they'd make these surprisingly good meals from stuff that they scored in the commissary or smuggled out of the dining hall. All right. And the most popular dish was chilaquiles, which they made with broken-up Fritos, an onion if they could find it, and beef jerky. Wow. That's uh, ingenious. Mm. And I hope I never get to try it. Exactly. All right, and that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. But don't despair. You are welcome to keep up with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party D-N-L-D. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the Dinner Party download. Peter Clowney is executive producer. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering help came courtesy of Bill the Diamond Lance and Jeff Peters. <laughs> and now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. This week it is a new track from singer-songwriter Nico Case. The song is called Man, and it is from her upcoming album, which is titled The Worse Things Get, The Harder I Fight, The Harder I Fight, The More I Love You. Bon appétit, bon appétit, bon appétit, bon appétit. <laughs> the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. <sighs> Guys. 
Come on. Stop. Hey, we have lives. Oh.